Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have a very incredible episode for you guys today. So hopefully you enjoy. I wonder if there was any big news last week that we need to cover. I just can't think of any news. You know, maybe it was uh, Tucker on Twitter. Maybe that could have been it. Or maybe it was something else. Of course, I just, obviously the big news is Trump was indicted once again last week for, and but this is not state charges. This is a federal indictment over his handling, his alleged handling of classified documents and his alleged obstruction of federal investigators investigating that. So obstruction of justice. So this is what he's now indicted over. He was hit with uh, 37 counts and a lot of some of these counts uh, they're trying to they could have a maximum penalty of 10 years so he could be facing well over a hundred years in jail if convicted um, just for uh, document handling <laughs> uh, and but that's what they're going with they had a and this uh, this is a this is very big news and so we're going to assess it what it means what it means for the presidential race what it means for just politics in general, and the precedent created by it, and whether they're going to do this. I always, you know, said that the documents thing was probably the strongest case because they they do have him now. The question is whether this is something that they actually prosecute over, because as everyone else has talked about, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and even Mike Pence have been engaged in similar behavior. Uh, obviously, they found these same level of classified documents in Joe Biden's residence shortly after they had raided Trump's residence last fall. And or it was actually in the summer, is August. And they found the same documents in Biden. When that happened, I was like, OK, this is good news. This is showing that there's so uh, everyone else is doing this. And they also found out that Mike Pence had classified documents in his residence or that he was supposed to turn over. And I was saying, Look, this is just a common theme for people in that in those type of positions in the executive power, and you know they may not want to charge Trump because the same charges apply to Biden. Um, but they did have Trump uh, with the documents, and they're also claiming that Trump was showing them off. He's discussing them. He's like, check out these battle plans and other things, and they're just saying that he was being loose with the documents, and that's why they're charging him. Uh, and the difference is between Biden. I remember when the Biden news came out, when they found those documents, you know, they're arguing like, well, the difference is, is Trump obstructed the retrieval of those documents while Biden turned them over. And that's not how these things works. It's like you kill someone and you're like, oh, no crime here. I turned over the gun and the other person didn't turn over the gun. And it's like, oh, well, since you turned over the gun, I guess we're not going to charge you. You know, the crime is still the same whether you turned it in or not. Now, the difference is obstruction, but the obstruction angle also applied to Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton deleted emails that she was supposed to turn over and she just straight up deleted them or whoever was, uh, you know, in charge of her system. You know, they deleted all this information. That was far more, you know, uh, egregious form of obstruction of justice than what Trump was involved in when they were, you know, his lawyers were cooperating <clears throat> And there was some miscommunication what over documents they should have. While Hillary Clinton's people knew exactly what they were wanting, and they straight up deleted it. And there's no retrieval from the deleted emails that no one knows about. 
are no one ever retrieved them versus these boxes, which they all retrieved and, and took account of. There was no uh, shredding or burning of those documents, at least alleged in the, in the indictment. And as we all should know, is that Hillary Clinton was famously not charged with, you know, her mishandling of classified material and her obstruction of justice back during the 2016 campaign. But now they're charging Trump in the middle of the 2024, well, at the start of the 2024 campaign. And, you know, the, and he's a former president and they're willing to do this. Now, why do they not charge Hillary Clinton? At the time, this is probably before Comey went full, never Trumper, anti-Republican. But Comey was a Republican appointee. And Comey, uh, you know, they felt that it would not be good for the republic's sake to indict a presidential candidate, someone who may likely be the president. And that, you know, for the sake of the republic, we're just going to let we're just going to let this be uh, something we're going to let slide. And that was the that was likely the argument because she was like very guilty. She was clearly guilty. I mean, Comey in the press conference in that summer of 2016 outlined why she should be charged, but he's like, "We're not doing it." And the argument for and they mentioned that she had done wrongdoing and there was definitely something amiss here, but they just felt like, "Well, we're not going to do it." And it was likely just who she was. Like, this is a powerful person, the Secretary of State. This is a minor tech. This is ultimately just a technicality that happened. And we're just not going to, you know, turn, you know, embarrass ourselves before the world by indicting our Secretary of State over document handling and also, you know, look like the FBI is interfering with the 2016 presidential election. And that's why they never, that's why they never charge her. I mean, that was the unstated reason, but that was the clear reason why. And obviously is that a lot of the Department of Justice people obviously overwhelmingly favored Hillary Clinton in the presidential race uh, compared to Trump. They were they they didn't want to charge their person for a president. They just and they felt that, well, you know, different standards. Very different Department of Justice now, which all these officials want Trump to go to jail, not just for this, but for treason and sedition over January 6th. And they'll just charge him for anything. I mean, they definitely have much more of a bone to pick with Trump. And I think Comey didn't reckon, recommend charges because, one, he's a, you know, he's a general a cuck. And he just didn't want to look like improper. It's like, oh, they're all going to hate me if I'm a Republican. And they've hated him anyway because he announced that they're reopening the investigation right before the election. And all the Democrats felt that that it impacted the 2016 election. And that's true. So that was why, you know, that was the Hillary Clinton thing. Now, the Trump thing, it's like they don't really care about the president. You know, they're, they want to, even though Trump is a former president, even though it, you know, really tarnishes American standing and American conception of itself to, you know, want to send a former president to jail, they want to do it. They really want to set the president that they really want Trump to go to jail, no matter what. This isn't about helping out Trump in the primary. This isn't like some hidden alter ulterior motive about helping Trump. The motive is to put Trump in jail. You know, a ton of DeSantis people are like, oh, they're trying to get Trump elected here or, or the nominee and that'll make him weak. You know, it's a similar things that they were trying to conspiracy theories they were promoting back in 2016 where they're like, oh, he's the Hillary Clinton plant. And, you know, he's somehow winning over with this message that other Republicans can't win with. He must be a plant. 
and then he'll lose the election. Of course, he didn't lose the election. He went on to win it. And many of these same people are the same ones claiming that it's the uh, conspiracy theory now. Now, a lot of the DeSantis people are uh, not being as uh, overt about this um, indictment than they were about other things that have been going on in the world. And some of them have, you know, been milk toast or whatever, or some of them are secretly cheerleading it. Actually, all of them are secretly cheering it on because they think that with Trump's legal problems will force him out of the race and thus DeSantis will be the nominee, which that's their whole basis for their campaign. That's a whole basis for every other presidential campaign besides Trump's. So there are a couple of different things to think about from here. One is like, will Trump be convicted of this, of these particular charges? That's a great question because with the Stormy Daniels one, those are just such ridiculous charges that their only chance that they have is that it's in Manhattan and the jury is all going to hate Trump. Uh, Otherwise, those charges would be immediately thrown out. And you had so many liberals who are saying that this is not a felony. This does not rise to a serious offense. This at most is like equivalent to a traffic ticket or a very minor offense. And they're trying to turn this into a major felony trial. And they all found it ridiculous with that. Here, you know, they do, uh, you know, it is it is technically an offense. And they do have Trump with this. I mean, they the argument that Trump could make is that, well, as president, I have the right of declassification. I have the right to keep these documents. And also everyone else is doing this. So why am I being selectively punished for this? And they could say that this is selectively uh, political persecution. Uh, they could argue in pretrial that it should be dismissed with prejudice due to the you know standard that they're setting with Biden and Hillary and elsewhere. And the judge is very sympathetic to Trump. She is a Trump appointee, Eileen Cannon. She's uh, ruled in favor of Trump in previous uh, dealings with this case. And so he has probably the best judge he could possibly have in America for a federal uh, trial. And the trial is going to take place in South Florida, not D.C., not New York City. And that gives him better chances of having a jury that's more sympathetic to him and more willing to rule in his favor. So there's a chance the federal judge dismisses it or the federal judge dismisses a lot of charges or rules against a lot of things that the prosecution wants to use in the case, says they can't use that in the case, and will make this trial as sympathetic as possible for Trump. Trump has pretty much the best conditions he could hope for in a federal trial in this case. So it's uh, it's unclear of that. The only thing is I'm a little skeptical of like the arguments he can make. If he goes to trial, the thing is, is <laughs> the, the offense that they accuse him of, yes, he, he is he is in you know responsible for that, but at the same time, there's this understanding that other, you know serious political leaders are able to do this and they are not charged with it. I am a little skeptical of how that will work in court because, well, I mean, it's just going to be a political trial. So the jury are just going to be like, do I like Trump? Do I think this is a political prosecution and just solely motivated by the desire to throw Trump in jail because of what he represents? Or am I going to consider the facts of the case? And they may have a tough time convincing an entire jury to find him guilty. But I still am a little skeptical of how this argument will work in in court because 
you know, it's like saying, well, someone else did this. I mean, it'd be going to like a murder trial. I'm like, well, O.J. Simpson got away with murder and why should I? (laughs) Or, you know, it's like a a six-year-old who's like in court. It's like, he, he, he hit me first or this kid hit someone and got away with it. And I, I, why am I getting punished? And anytime that like some kid does that, you know, you're clearly, that argument never works on adults for when six-year-olds use it. I'm not sure how it's going to use work in court and there is the additional argument that he has the power to of you know executive authority that he can just declassify this or use these documents at will there is some of that that he can bring in besides like someone else did it and get didn't get punished um which doesn't quite work as well in court um but there's other arguments he has the other big thing that has to be considered is like is he going to get other indictments And I'm starting to lean that in the other two cases that he still has, which is the federal investigation into January 6th and Stop the Steal, they're probably going to charge him with something. With what? It's unclear. But I just have this feeling that I always thought that was the weakest case. Everyone had understood that's the weakest case. It's like, what do they have him charged with? And even the leaks that they have for Trump, or not even real crimes. It's like them discussing, like, can we take the ballots? Can we do this? And they're like, no. And that's not a crime. That's like simply saying, like, you're, you're, you know, you're discussing something, what you do. And it's like, hey, can we break into this house and take this? And would that be against the law? And they're like, no, that you cannot do that. That's against the law. And then you not doing that. But they want to charge him for even discussing these ideas that they did, that they used, that, that, they discussed to see if they broke the law, and then they were told they, it broke the law, and they just didn't do it, which is a lot of these leaks that have been coming out of that investigation. And so I don't know what would, that's not how our justice system works. The fact that you talk about like, hey, when, couldn't we do this? And then like somebody's like, no, that's a crime. And then you end up not doing that. That is not a crime in our, in our, in our country. You know, there are some ways where you, you're in the process of, you know, doing a crime, you know, maybe you hire a hitman and the cops or law enforcement get a a hold of that. And you are going to clearly be uh, arrested for that. You know, if you make the deal, if you, you know, pay that person, you know, once you make that type of assumption, you're done. And there's been cases of where, you know, they've did this entrapment to uh, particularly some quote unquote white supremacists before where the federal informants were like, hey, wouldn't you like me to kill this judge? And then they're like, uh, I guess. And then, boom, they're arrested and charged for, you know, conspiracy, murder, conspiracy, and they're sent to jail. And there was this guy, uh, Matt Hale, uh, back in the 2000s who got charged with that. Um, and it was like a federal informant just like demanding he agree to that this guy should go kill a judge. And he said, sure. And. Uh, needless to say that was it but that's not what happened in trump's case there was no federal informants like don't you want me to steal the ballots don't you give me that order and they're like uh yes but that didn't really happen there they didn't actually commit any of the crimes the alleged crimes that the investigation is finding that they discussed uh so that's also once again it's like are these crimes it's the same thing with the documents is like is this an actual crime does the president actually have the authority to look into this matter and there's like murky territory as well but i think with 
you know, that's the real charges they want. That is really, they want Trump charged with something to deal with Stop the Seal. Ideally, they want some sedition uh, charge. I don't know how the hell they're going to prove that, but, you know, I, and I don't think that they're going to do something. There are all these lesser charges that the J6 committee uh, agreed to. You know, they couldn't agree to seditious conspiracy recommending on that, but they did recommend a bunch of lesser charges for Trump. And I do think that that's, you know, some of those are just what Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, is going to find. Because they could say, like, well, the weak case is weak. Well, they would be charging him, likely, in the D.C. federal court with D.C. people as the jury with an incredibly liberal judge overseeing it. Might as well just say, fuck it, let's go. Uh, let's, let's, why not do it? Because they've already set the precedent for indicting him. And I think there was a lot of worries over indicting him at first. And I think a big reason that Alvin Bragg up in Manhattan indicted him first is he wanted to create the precedent that they can indict Trump and see what happens. And they were definitely worried that there was going to be J6s all over the country. You know, they set up security barriers, not only in New York City, but in Washington, D.C. They were feeling that all these Trump supporters are going to storm all over the place. And Trump called for these mass protests. And there were no mass protests. There was nothing. You know, there was like, uh, you know, some boomers on a bridge in Florida, you know, cheering on the president. A lot of people were upset about the indictment uh, in New York, but there were no real protests. I mean, even the protests in New York City were minuscule. And that's, I mean, well, in part because there's not just that many, um, you know, ultra MAGA people out there to, you know, go to do the type of protest that people want, but people are not in a mood to protest. And now they see like, there's pretty much the type of backlash that they're always worried about because J6 really exists as a traumatic nightmare for the left. And they're always worried that they could do this again, but they see that the right cannot do this again. In part for a lot of reasons. One is that all the people who would be willing to do this type of stuff are arrested <laughs> over J6. You know, they've arrested well over a thousand people uh, for uh, involvement in January 6th. Two, all the right thinks that public demonstrations are now fed ops. And, you know, even though they all believe that civil war revolution is coming, apparently civil war revolution is going to be taking place uh, from their computer desk. Uh, not in the real world, uh, and it'll involve other people. But when public demonstrations are in play, see any right wingers in public, they immediately think it's a fed op. So no right wingers want to go to these events. I think for there's a smart opinion for that. I can I can agree with that, especially what happened with J six and all these people who did no crime at all are you know sent to jail for a long time, had their lives ruined just for you know walking around the Capitol without any without permission. Are walking in the Capitol without any permission. And I know they had their lives ruined over that. And so a lot of people are fearful of that and want to do that. But it's also any type of public demonstrations people just think is a fed off. And so they're not going to do this, which is really funny because at times you see people like, oh, this could lead to civil war. This could lead to mass uprising. It's a violence. And then you're like, okay, well, how about you organize a demonstration about this? Uh, no, that's fed off. I'm not an FBI agent. So, um, Lots of uh, incongruity, you know, some di cognitive distance going on with the mentalities. Like, it's going to cause a civil war and mass violence, but at the same time, all the right-wingers think that showing up in public together is, uh, is something organized by the FBI and CIA. And the third thing that there has been mass protests about this is because 
Most of the ultra mega people are not located in urban areas. There's not a central place for them to show up and just do mass protests. You know, they're all, most of them are in rural areas. You know, they're not going to have like a mass protest in, you know, Cannon County, Tennessee or something. You know, they're not going to be doing that <laughs> quite there. You know, they, they need a central point to show up and have a mass demonstration. And that's why those Stop the Seal uh, protests in Washington, D.C. were huge. Is that he's like, come here this day. And then tens of thousands of people showed up. And he can't get, I mean, unless he set a central location, it's like everyone show up in South Florida. And maybe you could get like 10,000 people. And that would show a demonstration. But it's also like not that important because, you know, no matter how many people get to protest, it's not like, it's not going to be like, oh, I guess we're dropping the charges. No, it's not going to happen like that. But at the same time, these worries about social turmoil and that this is a revolutionary moment and that this, there's no going back from this. Like they've crossed the Rubicon and now all these Americans, and some people are celebrating this as like accelerationism, like we're exposing the dark side of the system. No, it's not. Like, people just move on. They just, like, don't, you know, they're, some Republicans are upset about this. This does make them more likely to vote for Trump in the primary. It does make them rally to his support in the primary. But outside of these, like, you know, overblown ideas of, like, oh, leading to civil war, national divorce, or, you know, mass chaos on the streets, that's just not going to happen. No, there's like not going to happen. It, it, like we've seen this time and time again. There's not going to be there's not going to be any of these mass protests. If there's not even protests like what are the effects? It's like, "Oh, well people are waking up." Well, what are they waking up to and what are they doing about it? Like I think they're like that's terrible and then they go back to watching the game or you know, and they'll like they move on. Like and as I said, I wrote this tweet and I this is 100% true is that there's going to be more outrage over the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light can, then there is going to be over Trump's indictment. And that's sure enough, it's true. There's like, I mean, one, I I would say there is a difference here is that the average conservative can do something about Bud Light if they don't really like that can. They can simply say, I'm not buying Bud Light. That's it. I, I, so there's something you can do. There's not like a, I am not buying the DOJ beer can. (laughs) <laughs> because of them dro- dropping Trump. You know, there's not that level of you have, you know, in your ordinary activities, this ability to impact that the DOJ and the government. There is something you can do about Bud Light. So I understand that. But if you look at, like, conservative media, if you look at what the audience is, is like, ranting and raving about, they want the Bud Light, they want the Target stuff, they want these petty issues, and they're far more worked up about that stuff than they are by Trump's indictment. And what's more important, the federal government indicting a former president who is running for president on trumped up charges that they haven't charged other Democrats with, selective prosecution and the you know suppression of their political enemies, or a single case of beer with Dylan Mulvaney's face on it. Uh, You know what? The fact is I had a lot of people in my mentions say the Dylan Mulvaney case is more important because this that case of beer is tied to all these terrible social ills. And it's clearly that's bullshit. But people are such fucking idiots that they just want to believe this stuff. And this is what they get worked up about. And that's what it is. But that's that that's what really outrages them. So all these people are like, oh, this is acceleration. This is pushing us farther apart. This is going to lead to separation. No, it's fucking not. It's like they've 
Look at what people are outraged by on our own side. They care more about Target. They care more about Bud Light. They care more about Dylan Mulvaney than they do about Trump's indictment. That's the truth. I mean, and people want to say, like, well, offline, I think the average voter, at least in the Republican primary, is going to care more about the Trump indictment than the conservative media consumer. But the conservative media consumer is the one who's going to be showing up for protests, who's going to be really engaged in activists rather than the standard voter. And those people just want to focus on Target and Bud Light and Kohl's, not the Trump indictment. And a lot of those people are also supporting DeSantis, and they are thrilled with the indictment. You know, like, this is the greatest news um, that they have. And so it's, it's, I'm not saying that as a black pill. I'm just saying that that's like an obvious fact. And I, I think, and, and going back to my point, I was like def- sort of explaining why there may be more commitment to the Bud Light thing is that like for the average conservative, there's something you can do about it, or at least feel like you're doing something about it. Well, with the DOJ, uh, there's nothing. You, uh, there's not really much you can do about it besides voting. And a lot of these people are like, it's time to stop voting, as though like this should show our election scam. We're just not going to vote anymore. Vote harder, and it's like the alternative to vote harder is just tweet harder and create all these fantasies that you're going to lead a civil war or revolution or some secessionist but in reality you're not doing anything all your activities are situated around hobbies that have no impact and you just accept the world around you while you complain about it online and then if anyone talks about like hey you know how about we vote about something how about we get involved in the candidates like no we're not voting we're past voting we're in these fantasies that I'm actually not involved in in the real world, but I'm tweeting about and you have to support and we have to act like we're coming about. And that's what you have to think. Because that's, I always get these like from the secessionist types who are, you know, arguing about this. It's like, look, if you want to complain about me, about my takes on secessionism, why don't you build up a secessionist movement? And none of them are doing that. The secessionist movement and all this stuff are completely online and there's no real world involvement. I mean, yeah, you could point some like tiny groups. Um, I mean, there are secessionist groups within America that want to take, you know, states and break them into other states, like the greater Idaho movement. But I wouldn't create, say that's a secessionist movement. That's just something normal. And they're using normal politics like voting, uh, asking their lawmakers to vote on things. They're using a normal political process for this. They're not just, um, you know, idolizing their real time strategy game narrative online and demanding you believe it as well long-winded rant on going on some other greer head topics but i do do if some people are like oh this is a good thing no it's not a good thing and no there's like no accelerationist element to that i think most people you know they'll get the the type of effect that will have on them is not these people like oh i'm done with politics now i'm creating my own state the real effect is that people become so demoralized that they stop voting and they just focus on their own personal hobbies. And so instead of, you know, focus, you know, worrying about the uh, like things that they could change or make them better in a political perspective, they just focus on sports or video games or something else. And they become disconnected from trying to change the world around them. They accept the world around them uh, depressingly. So, and they just try to, you know, put their head down and focus on uh, lighthearted hobbies that, you know, don't, don't upset them like politics. So it could have an effect. Yeah, I do. It actually could have an effect on voting. But instead of like these people like not voting and somehow the state is like, oh, my God, 
there's all these people not voting. We have to give them their own state now. Instead, it's like, awesome, all these Trump supporters are not voting anymore, and this helps Democrats win elections. This helps uh, moderate establishment Republicans win the primaries. Hell yeah, this rules. We're returning to the status quo. That's what happens when you decide to not vote. But demoralization is more more of the result than accelerationism of some sort. And it's creating a precedent, but like some people just think it's like, oh, if you really upset people online and they are just like the and they tweet like the political system is done and, you know, they get a good amount of engagement. It's not like the system collapses the system. Once you go and touch grass and get out in the outside world and people who are not online, they're just like, oh, well, moving on, focusing on my ordinary life. And that creates more strength for the system and ensuring the status quo stays even stronger. And that's why you got to resist the demoralization. I hope this podcast is not too much demoralization in Blackville. Some people are just wanting to, I can already see like people complain that like I'm, I'm too black-pilled or something, or I'm too uh, pessimistic. And I just want to say like, look, I try to be honest. I try to say things that I think are truthful. I don't try to indulge in the doomerism and that stuff like other people. But I really don't like when other people offer delusional white pill takes all the time. And that's what the audience wants. And they want, and they lie to their audience. I don't try to lie to my audience. I try to be honest with my audience. And I'm not trying to be too black. Like, I think that Trump, you know, that Trump could still be, you know, beat these charges. There is still a chance... He could win. It depends on whether the other indictments fall. There's not a guarantee the other two indictments fall. I would just say I've been so bad on these predictions on the indictments because I think, even though I think last fall, like before the election, I was like, I think he is going to get indicted. And then like when the Biden news dropped, like they they had found the documents and I was like, well, maybe I'm not so certain about this. And but I think the Alvin Bragg indictment and them just seeing like the they wanted to do that to see the backlash. And then they're like, oh, well, let's go with all four. I I do think it's going to be very difficult for him to run in a general election if he faces four separate indictments (laughs) um, for things. I don't know about the Georgia case that well, but and the January 6th one is pretty weak, but they may just like go with it anyway. It's going to be very tough for him. Now, would it impact him in the in the Republican primary? Hell no. Like, they show the polls, like, 80% of Republicans are still willing to vote for, or think that Trump should still be president, even if he's convicted. So they're, they're 100%, they're behind him uh, in, this, in this battle. They're still st- sticking with him. And also the fact that the indictments are there it creates that all the attention is around Trump and all these candidates who secretly wish these indictments happen and push Trump out, you know, they have to act like they support Trump. Otherwise, they risk losing support within the Republican primary. So it actually does make sure help him in the Republican primary, but it doesn't. Uh, it obviously leads to problem in the general election because most people have already made up their minds about Trump, but there is a small number of independents that Trump has to win over. And the, you know, having the indictments and stuff, they may, it may be, uh, it may be too much for them, but we'll see. And also, I think there's also the, the fact of what's going on, on the Democrat side, which if he's running against Biden, Biden's health is in serious decline. Like all of his public, latest public appearances are horrible. Like the Air Force graduation ceremony where he doesn't even trip over anything. He just falls over and he can't get back up. Like that's really bad. And I remember, you know, they always talked about the Gerald Ford presidency is like what defined him is like tripping on airplane stairs. Look, 
you know, sometimes you're going to trip on airplane stairs, especially if you're an old man. And the those video cameras of him tripping is like a definitive part of his presidency. Probably because most people don't remember it, but they're like, oh, this just showed how like goofy he is and how old he is. And this didn't, this, uh, you know, made voters not want to vote for him because he looked old and frail. The fact is, is like tripping over airplane stairs is much more understandable than just keeling over at an Air Force graduation ceremony. Also, the fact that he hasn't taken any questions this year. He doesn't take questions at all from reporters. They know he can't answer questions anymore, and they just usher him out. And it is, like, ridiculous. Like, he doesn't even, like, you know, he'll just be uh, at a press, you know, scrubble. They'll be there. They'll be asking questions. They'll just look away from him. They'll smile, and they'll be ushered out. Like, he doesn't answer questions whatsoever. And... He, uh, you know, and he, even his, like, you know, speeches are getting worse and even just some, like, he, he is in, his health decline is starting to get more noticeable. And I do think that may be why the federal government is okaying some of these investigations that are going on. You know, there's the bribery uh, allegation that the FBI is now releasing those documents to Congress to look at. There's also his own document issues and other things that could be found out. And there could be, and Hunter Biden's own legal problems, there could be a concerted effort to push Biden out and have another candidate. Uh, I've gone back and forth on this, but I do think that they're now more committed to this because I think Biden's health uh, or mental health has significantly declined this year. I think he still had the ability to give a speech and to do what's necessary, but I think they're learning that he just cannot campaign at all and they're going to have to get someone else and. So, you know, even with the Republican problems that they have, like I I always say this, like it's going to be very tough for Republicans to win no matter who they're running. And everyone thinks that, oh, well, if Trump's not running, they don't have to worry about Trump anymore. That's not true. Trump is still going to be a central part of this election, whether, you know, whether he's the candidate or not. He's going to be a top issue. And Republicans are going to be heavily dependent on getting out those Trump voters. And if Trump voters feel that the Republican Party is betraying their leader, their guy, they're just not going to show up to vote. And that could make that could make a huge impact. That's what happened to the Georgia special elections in 2021 is like these people felt the Republican Party had betrayed them over you know the election and they just didn't turn out to vote and Republicans lost those races. And the same thing could happen again in 2024. That's that demoralization factor. So these Republicans have to keep Trump happy, Trump on their side and Trump campaigning for them no matter what happens, and endorsing it, um, and him endorsing whoever the candidate is. And part of that is promising a pardon for him if he, you know, drops out and, you know, a Republican becomes president, they'll offer immediate federal pardon. But that's also going to become a campaign issue that Democrats are going to run with. So that creates some issues there. I mean, that's what they should do. So he's going to be a factor no matter what happens. I guess, like you know, it's time to bring up a cognitive leak question because I did have someone ask this uh, cognitive leak question. So as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the cognitive leak option at Highly Respected's Substack. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So this question comes from Friendly Graper, and he asks, Scott, if Trump ends up dropping out of the race due to legal problems, who, if anyone, do you think he'll endorse to be the nominee? Um, 
They're both non-white, but the two people who are most likely to get an endorsement if he drops out are Vivek Ramaswamy and, I hate to say this, but Tim Scott. I, You know, the one thing is that you can understand that I'm not a paid Trump shill is that I'm off willing to offer criticism of Trump in a way that DeSantis shills are not. Uh, actually, Vivek is... Vivek is the second best after Trump. Obviously, there's issues with him. He wants more immigration. He wants more Viveks here. And I don't really trust the guy, but he is much better than DeSantis because he addresses race issues far more and he has way more charisma and he's more willing to address new and different topics. And I think he's willing to connect with or able to connect with people in a way that DeSantis can't. I think he's much more willing to popularize dissident right ideas. He's much better on free speech than DeSantis. You know, he criticized, he's the first major figure to criticize DeSantis for his hate speech bill, uh, which then everyone jumped down on him, but and then he stayed stuck with it while DeSantis signed a hate speech bill. And he talks a lot about, you know, reducing the civil rights regime and uh, race and crime and a lot of other issues, interesting issues that other candidates aren't. Once again, I don't really trust the guy, but... You know, beggars can't be choosers. He'd be second. Uh, Tim Scott would be the worst. Tim Scott, out of all the candidates who has a chance of winning, would be the obvious worst. Him being the nominee, being the nominee, would be such a devastating loss for the devis- for the dissident right. That would be just the biggest BTFO in a while. And if he became president, if he was the nominee, I would campaign for the Democrat. I would I would support the Democrat. I would not support Tim Scott under any circumstance. Um, that would be such a first off, as I said, a BTFO for us. It would just devastate us, and it would just be moving the GOP. Back to the pre-Trump status quo while accepting multiculturalism and diversity in a way. And like, we're this is a new friendly GOP. Look, we've got Tim Scott. Uh, Scott would have his own issues in a general election. So I don't know how, and in a primary, but I don't know how that would work. Um, but those are the two most. And even though Tim Scott gives, I was wondering if Tim Scott would mention the indictments, but he gave like the most wishy-washy statement, but he it did sound like he condemned it, uh, condemned it, but Trump likes him. Uh, the other likely candidates, you know, he would never endorse DeSantis. DeSantis, he hates the most. Second, he hates the most is Pry Pence. And he doesn't like Haley and he doesn't like Chris Christie. And Burgum and uh, who else? Asa Hutchinson, all these guys who are in the race, I don't think he's going to acknowledge. Uh, the other person who has not entered the race, who may, I don't think Trump would endorse him, but you know maybe maybe he could because Young could could go out and meet with him. But it's it's Glenn Youngkin. Uh, that could be a third possibility. Trump doesn't really like Youngkin, but Youngkin could you know he's smart. He could go out of his way to you know meet Trump and talk about how he will definitely give him a pardon and he'll do all these things. And so Youngkin could emerge as like a third possible person he could. Endorse and Youngkin, from what I'm being heard, is actually going to enter the race and he could be a serious contender. Uh, the only people besides Trump who could theoretically win are one, I don't, I can't even put a ranking on this. I mean, I think DeSantis would have a tough time no matter what, but DeSantis could win. As I always say, the two big issues with DeSantis is his personality. He cannot connect with people, he's not charismatic, he is very weird and awkward. 
I think the more the Republican voters see of him, the less they're going to like of him and the more they're going to want to vote for other people. And second is Trump's animosity towards him. A lot of those Trump voters are never going to support DeSantis. And he's going to have a tough time. And DeSantis has been very stupid. Like, imagine if DeSantis had waited. I always thought DeSantis was going to wait till the fall to announce because he wanted to see if Trump would drop out. He did not want that head-to-head challenge. But his idiotic, you know, uh, advisors and consultants are like, you need a head-to-head. Like, the Republican Party needs this. Then he, he jumps in, and Trump hates him more than any other candidate. Imagine if he just waited till the fall, and it looked like Trump may drop out. I think it's less than 50% chance Trump drops out. He's going to continue on, but we'll see what happens with any future indictments happen or, you know, he gets really worried about this. We'll we'll see when that happens. But I would say it's a 30% chance he drops out before the primaries. But, uh, you know, DeSantis could make himself look a lot better if he had waited till after the indictments uh, that may be dropping the summer. And, you know, he had gone and is like, I am promising, a f- I am promising a full pardon for Donald Trump. I, I don't like the Department of Justice going after him. He had such a, a, a crappy statement. Uh, I, I do have to do my DeSantis impersonations because everyone wants that. Dude, he had the funniest this week when he was at Oklahoma. He's like, hello, Oklahoma. I'm coming from Florida, and in Florida, we do a lot of great things that you guys do in Oklahoma. And, like, the whole crowd is just like, shut up. This is like a rodeo. Um, we'll do more DeSantis impersonations down the line, but I had to get some of it. But he, if he had just waited till fall and, and, and promised that he is going to pardon Trump and go after the Department of Justice, and he's running because, you know, they're they're persecuting Trump. And he ran on a pro-Trump platform, and he's like, I'm doing this to save Trump, and I want to be president to save Trump. You know, Trump may be more minimal. I mean, Trump had been building up his animosity towards DeSantis for a long, long time. It had been starting up in 2022, even before the midterms. But, so maybe DeSantis just had no hope of it, but there, you know, he made sure that, he was going to have that he destroyed all chances of it so those are two DeSantis' big problems he could still theoretically win other Tim Scott unfortunately I I always predict this and if Trump dropped out he would be I would almost pick him possibly as the favorite to depending on who Trump if Trump endorses Vivek I would I would change my mind but um, you know, Scott could become the favorite to win in a Trumpless primary. Then Vivek, because Vivek may get uh, endorsed by Trump, and then Pence. Bec- even though Trump hates Pence, Pence is doing the strategy of you know parking out in Iowa and making people vote for him. And a lot of Iowans could like him. He's evangelical. He's down home. You know, he has that type of appeal that a lot of those Iowa mid midwesterners like and he could you know you know maybe he doesn't get that much money but he wins iowa and that helps out build up his rate his campaign youngkin i think youngkin could be a serious contender i think he would get a lot of money a lot of support and he also has this like you know like we're restoring the republic to you know nice civility values and he could possibly get Maybe Trump might like him if he, you know, swoons him. You know, there's something with uh, Youngkin. So those are the people I think could win. And so it's Scott, DeSantis, Vivek, 
Pence and Youngkin would be the only five I could think. Uh, Nikki is having a horrible time in the campaign trail and Trump hates her. Christie, his time to win was long past. Like it's it's was 2012. It's 11 years ago. He's past his prime. He's not gonna. I don't think he's. He doesn't even really have a state to park. He's not gonna win over Iowa voters. And Trump really hates him too. And his whole message is being anti-Trump. I think that's gonna alienate people. So I don't really. I really see the only five that could win. Uh, without Trump there or those five and there's only three I could see being endorsed Youngkin is a very because Trump has criticized Youngkin before but like I said Youngkin has the ability to more much more so than DeSantis and Pence to correct that and change Trump's attitude towards him through private meetings and things like that and Vivek and Tim Scott so uh, out of those out of those five I would say Vivek is the best. DeSantis on paper is second best, but I, 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 I don't know. I don't. DeSantis really is not the guy, and I think if he was the nominee for president, he would lose. Um, not you know, he just does not have the personality to win a presidential race. That's like that is such a huge hurdle. And everyone who's like saying like, oh, he doesn't need charisma. Oh, he just doesn't need to know how to talk to people. Oh, he just is extremely boring. People just read a handout of all of his record, and that's what they vote for. It completely misunderstands politics. It completely doesn't get what American politics is about and what wins elections. It's about your ability to connect with people. It's about your personality and whether people are drawn to it. It's not people printing off your record and deciding your record is the best. That's not how voters work. That's not how America works. It's not how any of these races work. And his personality and all these people are like oh democrats really fear him i think he is even if trump is indicted on all four counts i think he is about as beatable he would be about as competitive as a presidential candidate as trump maybe even worse because he'd lose a lot of trump voters so those are my opinions on that um on the race so yeah this is another thing looking at the alternatives is why trump needs to stay in the race even if his chances of winning are not that good. I've always argued this. It doesn't matter if Trump is in the candidate. They have a tough time in the, in the election. The What the Trump alternatives want to run on is even less appealing than what Trump is running on. Trump is running on an appealing message. You know, it's a immigration. It's the identity stuff. It's like the economy. It is this sense of, you know, that these unelected bureaucracy is running our country. Everyone else's message is like, just doesn't answer it. It's like, you know, DeSantis is going to run on Disney. You know, nobody gives a fuck about Disney. So no one gives a shit. Like, that's going to be his whole message is him talking about these wonky policies and other things. And then there's the abortion matter and other uh, aspects that Republicans want to get into. It's going to be very tough for Republicans to win, even if Trump isn't the guy. And if you think all the problems are Trump, there's a lot of other problems besides Trump. And Trump still remains as essential. And if you really believe Trump is that much of a ball and chain, he's still going to be an issue, even if he's not the nominee. And I, I think even despite the prospects, I think that's why you got to stick with Trump. Trump is still the leader. Trump is still the guy who represents our people. And, you know, as long as he's in the race, he is the one to support. Because he is, he is that he is symbolic of much more than himself, and much more symbolic of anything besides his election. He is the avatar of the historic American people, 
He is a flawed avatar, of course, but he is the avatar and you have to stick with it. And especially in this time of persecution that they are, it's true, they are not just going after him. They're going after who he, what he represents and the people who support him. He is just a figure and representative of that. And so you have to rally behind him and support him no matter what. Uh, as long as he's in the race. As long as he's still in the race, I still support him. I still want him to win. I still hope that he's the nominee. And we make the best of that situation, despite how looming the odds are that he will not win the presidential race. I think it's uh, there's something much bigger than winning the presidential race. And I'd much rather lose with Trump than win with Tim Scott. And I think everyone should think that. I'd even uh, go uh, DeSantis... <laughs> It, well, once again, I think they're both likely to lose. So uh, I are I think that DeSantis's odds are at not much better than Trump's, and they may in fact be worse. So it's not like oh, I want to win with DeSantis, but then DeSantis loses, and then the whole argument for him being the nominee is stupid, and then it just pushes the GOP back into status quo, the business first status quo with him, with Trump as the leader, as the figurehead that still pushes the party and pushes the right in the correct direction that we want. And if it's somebody else, it's a reverting back in the direction that we don't want the party to go. And so that's why we're stick. I would stick with Trump as long as he uh, is running. And even if he drops out, there's like nobody better than him. I mean, the best person is Vivek, which is um, that's like how bad the alternatives are. So that's why I would stick with Trump as long as he's in the race. And I think that everyone has. But I. You know, it's fine to be realistic about his chances of winning the presidential election. But, you know, it's about to make it a, a symbolic race and a campaign saying that the, you know, you can persecute us, you can indict us, but we're still going to be challenging you and running and not dropping out and defying the authority of the liberal elites with our guy. And maybe he could still win. You know, maybe he could still win. I think he's, but he is the avatar of the historic American people. And for that reason alone, you still support him as long as he's in the race. And there's no one better than him right now. The other message is, is people really got to avoid demoralization. Like Bannon, you know, there's like some issues with Steve Bannon. But Bannon made always a good point that saying like, you know, they're not going to let us win the fight easily. You know, they're going to we're going to have a lot of trouble and, and hardships going along. And this is just the price of like, you know, wanting to fundamentally change the country and going against the powerful interests of our country. This is, a, and, you know, you shouldn't just be demoralized by all these setbacks. And we're suffering a lot of setbacks right now. Let's, I want to be honest, like we are suffering a ton of setbacks. Is that a lot of people are like, oh, conservatives are finally winning through the Bud Light boycott and other things. I know I bring up the Bud Light boycott, but it's, this is like every damn day. Everyone's like, we're winning. And it's like, why? Bud Light sales are down. Well, since the boycott began at the beginning of April, let's see what's let's review what's happened. Trump has been indicted twice. The Tucker Carlson, our who our most important voice in public arena, no whether you like him or not. I know there's some people who have issues with him, and even some of his show, uh, you know, his new Twitter show, I have some issues with it. But he's still the most important voice for getting a lot of our nationalist ideas out there. He was taken off the air. Which showed that, and that is a thing that has nothing to do with the federal government. That's due to audience. And Fox News felt that they can just say, screw you, audience. We're taking him off the air and moving in uh, you know, the old Fox News direction and taking off somebody who's spreading a lot of dissident and right nationalist views off the air. And that was a huge setback. And you can see what's happening on Twitter is that 
you know, his new show, it's... Uh, he, first off, he's going in more into harmless conspiracy territory. You know, he's talking about UFOs and stuff, which I, I just find stupid. Uh, the UFO thing, I read a great tweet... Uh, read about how it's complete bullshit that it's basically these whistleblowers are these whack jobs that harry reed was really interested in in investigating ufos and so out of you know due to his power that he had you know the federal government set aside all these millions of dollars to investigate it and then they hire these crackpots and now these crackpots are coming out and they're like i've heard from secondhand sources that we have the aliens and then a lot of the other clips and stuff are turned out to be flares and Things that are not alien spacecraft. But people really want to get into this conspiracy stuff because the conspiracy stuff is entertainment and our side cannot resist it. They love conspiracies. So they're getting into this stuff. Other, you know, the other, uh, like, I don't want to attack it too much. I think he's still talking about important stuff. But then the second episode is about how the left is normalizing pedophilia, which I think a lot of the right wants to believe that because. It creates a stronger moral argument against the left if we believe that they're pro-pedophile. But I want to give this white pill as like they are not uh, pedophilia is remaining the strongest taboo in our society. It's even a stronger taboo than racism in our society. And this is a good thing. Like I want to say this is like a good thing. And even the left indulge like both the left and right you call in the same way that they'll call each other racist, they'll also call each other pedophiles. And you know, the left's form of pedophilia is a 45-year-old actor dating a 22-year-old. The right's is, you know, more along the traditional lines of pedophilia. But everyone throws around the pedophile argument against each other. And the society is much more critical of this stuff. It's like, I use this argument, uh, you know, when it comes to <clears throat> earlier this year. I use this argument at the beginning of this year when... Uh, there was controversy over this old video of Demi Moore when she's 19 making out with a 15-year-old. And everyone's like, this is pedophilia. And you can even see this now. as like teacher sex stories are totally uh, verboten. Like there's no lighthearted matter about it. Like Greg Gutfeld did a you know, uh, you know, know, segment talking about how like funny it is this, old te- this older teacher had sex with one of her students. And five years ago, everyone would be laughing about it. They would be playing Van Halen's Hot for Teacher, you know, and everyone would be like, this is hilarious. This isn't a real crime. And conservative media, you know, would cover it as something funny. You know, the Daily Caller all have these teacher sex story stuff written by my good friend Eric Owens, of course. And now, like, they can't do that because both sides consider that hardcore pedophilia. Is that both sides are now um, extremely uh, – the taboo has gotten stronger because they now apply that to, uh, you know, female teach hot teachers are, you know, having sex with a 17-year-old student, you know, which was a point of laughter or humorous event and, you know, celebrated in rock songs and others. And now it's seen as horrific example of pedophilia the the taboo itself is getting stronger but anyway this is the topics that tucker are getting into it's very much what like the like a lot of the conservative audience hoi polloi wants but it's not quite the identitarian issues they want i still think he's going to give good segments but at the same time the bigger issue is that with tucker is that i still still think his voice is important and it still matters but right now instead of being the number one cable news host he's just another guy on the internet with a show and that i mean that's still there's <laughs> as a guy on the internet with a show just spouting off on things you know it's still create there's still th- good things you can do with that because he's still going to have popularity he's still going to have reverence but he or relevance but he's not going to have as many relevance influence and power as he did on fox 
with an internet show. And Fox is trying to shut him down. They're sending a cease and desist letter so he can no longer do his YouTube or his Twitter show uh, due to his contract um, battle. But the overall point is they're silencing Tucker, and that's not a that's a huge setback. Whether you like him or not, he is advancing our issues to the public. And you know if. Those Americans who are turning in for Tucker are now tuning in for Sean Hannity. That's a massive, that's a reversion back to the past. That's a, that's a, that's several steps backward. And then the other thing that's like a huge loss is like the Supreme Court ruled in favor of racial gerrymandering is that last week they ruled in favor of these uh, people who are suing the state of Alabama saying that they need two majority black districts, not just one. And it's essentially saying that the Supreme Court read into this idea that, and this is like due to Voting Rights Act and civil rights law and all the things that are getting into this, that, you know, you have to have, depending on your population, you have to have a, a certain number of districts that are majority black or majority Hispanic or majority non-white in order to satisfy the requirements of the civil rights regime. And that's essentially what the Supreme Court said. And that's a huge setback because, you know, a big thing that Republicans want to do is they want to create more seats for themselves and they and they can, you know, with the state power they have, total control of a lot of these Republican states, they can make the districts look however they want to. And now the Supreme Court says, no, you can't. You have to have a set aside for a certain number of districts for majority non-whites. And it's that was not a uh, that's not a win. That would, and these were conservative justices who voted for it. Uh, John Robertson and Brett Kavanaugh. And so that was a setback. And there's several and there's other setbacks, too. But so that in the time that we've been having total victory against Bud Light, we've seen our president uh, get indicted twice. We've seen our favorite news host uh, take it off the air and effectively try to be silenced. And we've seen the Supreme Court rule in favor of racial gender, gerrymandering among districts. So it's not, you know, this is not to say that we're all losing, but I think that people just need a realistic understanding of what we're up against and what we face and not to just get all worked up about petty matters. And I think this is why, you know, still the political process is important, still like getting people in there because I have another commonly question. I'll get to this commonly question later on is that it's about the judiciary. It's like you need people in these positions so you're not completely screwed and if you just give up on voting, give up on the political process, that allows our enemies to monopolize all the power. And it's not just that someday that they're like, wow, they've done all these terrible things. Now we're really waking up. No, they can just continue to do terrible things and continue to move the ball forward for their side while everyone was just like, oh, well, and shrug their shoulders and continue watching the NFL. You have to be involved in the political process. You have to be involved in this stuff. There's not just simply some moment that happens that says it's game over and it's time to, uh, you know, abandon the system. It doesn't matter how demoralized you are or how black-pilled you are or how you're like, this is over. No matter how many times you tweet about that, the system is not over. The system is going to continue on and move forward, whether you like it or not. And the only way to make a difference is to continue to be involved and to continue to want to make that change and not to abandon the political process itself or pretend that, you know, you know, some of these corporate boycotts, which are good in themselves, you know, they, they are having an effect, but they're not a replacement for political power. I'd much rather have a court that ruled in favor of of uh, base gerrymandering. <laughs> I'd much rather have a Department of Justice that put Biden and Hillary Clinton in jail, not Joe, uh, not Donald Trump. And the only way that we can achieve that is through gaining political power and being involved in the political process 
And the political process is never going to go away. It's still going to be there. And by you deciding that I'm not going to vote, that just allows your political enemies to gain more power and to ruin your life and to make our lives all more miserable than they are as is. And a lot of people, the normies, you know, they're they're not going to wake up in the way we want. They're not going to wake up in the way they want. There's not going to just be some day that they feel that like this is the last straw and they have like a V for Vendetta revolution. Like in the movie V for Vendetta where they're just like they watch TV one day and they're like, oh, they're lying to us. And then they overthrow the government. That doesn't happen in the real world. Most people will just like say that's too bad and turn back to the uh, NBA finals or whatever they're watching. So in conclusion, we're sticking with Trump. I think, and it's not all over. It's not. It's not over. We we could be back at some points, but I mean, we're we are suffering setbacks, and I think it's it's time to learn from them and to figure out ways to move around them and how to gain uh, things. But even if like you know, there's more setbacks in 2024, you have to realize like here's some white pills. Like far more people are into the identitarian and and racial stuff than it ever at any time since I've been a conservative. I remember when I first got into the stuff professionally 10 years ago, nobody was into the stuff. Everyone was like into libertarianism and just goofball stuff. And they weren't into that. Now you have mainstream people who are into Steve Saylor, who are one of, who are fully in favor of immigration restriction, which was an idea that was completely foreign to the political discussion in 2013. Now you have tons of people are into this stuff. You now have people are reading, you know, popularizing Sam Francis and other writers that were forbidden back in the day. And you are seeing a lot of positive developments in that. And I do think that a lot of ordinary Americans are waking up to the realities of anti-white racism and how that's going to affect them. And a lot of these identity issues are only going to be more potent in the future. And we still have you know, well, you know, nearly 200 million whites in America, you know, and they're still there. They're still having, many of them are still having kids. They're still sticking there. They're not going away. That's a lot of people. And we never know what the future can tell. And as long as we're engaged and and in the proper position to be there to help out like some event we didn't see, like nobody predicted that when Trump came down the escalator, that he would become the avatar of the historic American people. And then sure enough, he did. And he advanced our cause and made a lot of these issues that no one was talking about before, except on forbidden alt-right websites like me, on Radix or something. And then he made them mainstream and made them popular topics in America. So, and like the, this is sometimes, but there's sometimes you're going to take losses and you just got to move on. You just got to keep pumping forward. You know, it's like with a football team. When they when they hit a loss, do they just give up on the season? No, they dust themselves off and they get back in the game. We're gonna use some sports analogies here. They get back in the game, and that's just how it is. Like you know, sometimes you're gonna lose, but it's like you just gotta keep yourself up. You gotta keep your head high and keep pounding forward. You gotta keep going forward, and that's all we can do. Is like you live to fight another day. As long as we're still here, as long as there's still, uh, you know, tens of millions of whites in America and tens of millions of whites in Europe and there's still hope and there's still a chance that we can do things. And there's just a lot of events that will, that could happen in the future that could create interesting opportunities that we don't know about now. We just have to be in that position to be there. And I think the goal for us is to not um, uh, enclose ourselves off the ghetto and believing we're 
going to create our own separate state and, you know, being closed off from how ordinary people think and what they're actually motivated by. The real solution to this is staying involved in the political process and trying to promote our ideas to the mainstream and trying to get people who think like us or at least agree with a lot of what we say and getting them elected to office and making sure our issues stand front and center American public life. So I have two quick topics to talk about before we go into uh, the, the other cognitive questions. The first is there's news that the military is stepping up its recruitment of immigrants who are in the country to offset the recruiting short, shortages. And I tweeted out that this is a late Roman Empire moment. I got the most pedantic replies and the well actually replies. I was just I was just barraged with them. I had one people like this is uh, you're trying to sound smart by being that this is an empire thing. Well, actually, they were doing this in the Republic, or they were doing this in the early empire, and all these people were saying the same thing. I'm like, oh, oh, America's been doing this forever, and it's like, look, they're stepping up the recruitment to get all these foreigners in. And Roman Empire over time, you know, they began you know, declining the requirements or increasing the benefits for some of these foreigners to become in. And it became a huge problem that like most of their legions were made up of foreigners who didn't really have much loyalty to the old Roman ways. And they'd have military mutinies and are really revolts led by generals who are, who are not of Roman stock or Italian stock. And that became issues. And now they're just, I think the one thing is like for the people who are combat arms that still matter, you know, the combat MOSs and stuff, that's still largely made up of white guys, rural white guys, relatively conservative. If you look at the, there's not much diversity in special forces and they always complain about how the special forces and the pilots, Air Force and Navy pilots are too white. So all the things that really matter in the military are still largely staffed by white guys, but all the logistics and supply stuff are very uh, diverse. So they're bringing these people in. I think it's become more of a thing over time because as I said with the military recruitment shortages, some people say it's due to people rejecting wokeness, but I think it's more just the fact that there's not as many uh, rural white young people as there were in years past and there's not the quite the appeal to patriotism anymore and we're not in a war at the moment or where there's all this military recruitment propaganda being found like there was in the 2000s so that's why the recruitment is there and i do think that they are going to try to expand the opportunities for immigrants to serve like with some of these illegal immigrants who are trying to come over they're like oh instead of applying asylum how about you join the U.S. military to uh, get in the country? And so we import these people directly from like Guatemala and Venezuela and what have you to join the military. <laughs> I think that we could see that come over time. But I uh, just want to get that qu uh, topic out there. There's a few smaller things, but uh, I'm trying to keep this a white pill discussion. Uh, but the, the next thing is that there were news. Uh, it was a Gallup poll that showed that social conservatism, our support for social conservatism, is at a relative high right now. 38% of Americans say they're socially conservative according to Gallup. 29% say they're socially liberal. And the 38% figure is the highest it's been since 2012. And so a lot of people got really uh, positive about this. There's some positive aspects about this. But social conservatism means something very different in 2020 or 2023 than it does in 2012. In 2012, social conservatism meant you were firmly opposed to gay marriage. You didn't want gays to adopt. You were. It was very much tied to 
evangelical Christianity, very conservative. Like the the idea of social conservatism in for the '90s and 2000s, and really before gay marriage was legalized, means something different. Today, social conservatism just means you don't think that they should be uh, teaching transgender stuff to elementary school kids, and you have problems with political correctness. Uh, you don't like woke, wokeness run amok. And so it's a very much of a lower standard of what social conservatism is compared to 2012. And so a lot of people see those figures and they're like, oh, well, this shows that a lot of Americans would be open to banning gay marriage. Polls on that question show a completely different matter. It shows that like over 70% of Americans support gay marriage. And it's the same on abortion, which abortion still is included in social conservatism. You know, more Americans now than ever before believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. It's getting close to two thirds of Americans who believe that. So on those two questions, which a lot of people who call themselves social conservatives, particularly in political commentary, those are the two you know issues that they're very much care about. Well, I don't know about gay marriage. Gay marriage is something that's like, all the opposition towards it is now just online, which is like a complete retreat from 2012, where 2012, like, that was like the main social conservative issue. And now, like the people who run, you know, who talk about this stuff and are public figures involved in this stuff, you know, there's still some public figures who are in this, but I'm talking about like the mainstream major political movers and shakers who are in this. Nobody talks about that issue. It's now just... Uh, transgender stuff and you could have even seen this when they congress passed gay marriage last year which it's already legal in the country but they just wanted to uh, solidify it with a congressional vote and all the opposition towards it was not about banning gay marriage it was not about that like very few people were even talking about how we should actually keep gay marriage illegal all of it all the arguments were based around religious freedom they're like saying well like well i don't like this bill because we think it may uh, intrude upon religious freedom with some of the stipulations. There was hardly any mainstream discourse about how we shouldn't have gay, gay marriage shouldn't be legal. Complete difference from 2012, where pretty much every conservative, you know, everyone who ran in the 2012 race and the GOP field had to be opposed to gay marriage. And even in the 2008 Democratic field, every, uh, you know, all the major Democrat candidates had to say we're opposed to gay marriage. Like both Bill, I mean, both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama said they were opposed to gay marriage in 2008. So uh, by the standards of social conservatism now, they would count as social conservatives. They may be more socially conservative than a lot of the people who say they're socially conservative now. Because social conservatism has a much lower standard for what it means. It simply just means you oppose wokeness and you don't like transgender stuff in schools. And like it's prior, the two biggest issues are... Wokeness, our political correctness, are this threats to free speech. That would be the second issue. And then the number one issue would be trans stuff. And just being opposed to that stuff would make you can be considered social conservative because socially liberal would mean you support censorship and you support, you know, transgender education for elementary school kids and and puberty blockers and all that type of stuff. So it's like a much it's just a different definition of that stuff. Um so and it could even mean some of the I, I don't know whether it could mean like some of the immigration and race stuff and like being opposed to critical race theory, but that could also factor in for what social conservatism, which that could be you could see a change is because that identity stuff was not a part of social conservatism. It was all 
like gender and religious matters that would have made you social conservatism, social conservative, like in 2012 or the 2000s. Now it means something different. So it may include some of the identity stuff. It, it you know, that really deserved follow up questions over like, what do you mean by social conservatism? And they could have listed like issues that they care about. So there'd be more question. I, so I think that people may be getting uh, jumping over their skis by thinking that this shows that there's a growing demographic in the population who want to, you know, return America to the social values of the 19th century or are ready for the Catholic integralist state. I think people need to understand what they mean by social conservatism. And today there's a lower standard for social what it means to be social conservatives than it does to be. Uh, a social liberal or what it meant to be social conservative in 2012. Like the people who are liberal in 2008, at least in the democratic field would count as very socially conservative today. So it's just like some radical changes that have been afoot. But now on to the rest of the comedy questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the I or not, if you sign up for the convalid option at highly respected Substack, and that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. Make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So the first or the second question really would be from Mystery. He asked, Scott, can you give your thoughts on Tom Cotton's Raise Act as a liberal immigration reform goal for the right? No, it's a very good goal. It hasn't been brought up uh, again. I don't think they reintroduced the Raise Act for this Congress um, or even the past two Congresses, but it still remains as a, as a gold standard for what Republicans should seek. You know, the bill would ha- would reduce immigration by half. You know, there's like roughly a million slots every year. Instead, it would reduce it to, to half a million and it would cut off chain migration and make it much harder to get here. And it would serve America's interests. So it provides like a legislative framework for us to seek and want to promote. And more candidates in the Republican field should promote it. Uh, it's rather unfortunate that they haven't reintroduced it again, from the best of my knowledge, or at least they're not publicizing the reintroduction of it. Uh, when it was first introduced, like David Perdue and Tom Cotton were the backers of it. And then the next, when they did that in the 2017-2018 session, and then they reintroduced it in 2019 with a third sponsor, that was Josh Hawley. Um, I could have reintroduced it in the last session. I, I can't remember. But it is like a very good framework. I, I fully support it. I think it's a realistic framework, too. And it's something that gives, you know, the Republicans that basis for what to campaign on and how they want to restrict immigration. So I'm all I'm all for it. Um, I just think people need to bring it up again. So maybe uh, Tom Cotton and Holly should uh, reintroduce it to create some buzz and create some push in that direction. So yeah, that's a very short answer, but I think it's uh, in general very good. I don't. There's not really any criticism I can make of it. The next question comes from future American refugee, and he lays a lengthy question. So we like that. He's he says he has two questions. As you know, a large majority of the societal and cultural change in the last hundred years was forced upon us through the judicial branch of the government. As you talked about before, this is only possible via mass mobilization funding and strategic organizing of left-wing lawyers who aim to transform the country through the judiciary due to the fact that they knew it was not possible for them to do it the right way through the legislature. With that being said, I'm of the firm belief that our our best avenue to rescind a lot of this change or to make most of these changes we want is through the judiciary. Although the current SCOTUS has its faults, we are historically primed to get more favorable rulings through them than we could have 
in a long time. Stephen Miller, who shares many important opinions with us, founded and runs America First Legal, whose goal is to make these strides. Their goals are admirable, but it is early on. My first question is, do you agree with my assessment that the judiciary is our most viable path forward to make changes in the law and country? Um, I don't know if it's the most viable. I, I think the most viable is the executive branch, to be honest. I think it's the executive branch and some of the and I and I talked about this with birthright citizenship is that you do need the judiciary in that process, but the executive branch needs to make decisions and then you need the judiciary branch to approve them. That's really our most viable path forward is that you really need the executive branch. Executive branch appoints most of these judges are really all the federal judges, actually, in fact. And in order to shape the judiciary in the direction you want, you need to control the executive branch. And the executive branch is a more active activist uh, branch than the judiciary. The judiciary just sees these rulings. You know, they can't just we've decided on immigration restriction. You know, that has to be made through the executive branch. And it's very difficult to get things through the legislature. So I would say the executive branch is our more of um, viable path. But the judiciary is also very viable in a way that if you don't control the the executive branch, then the judicial branch is our most viable path forward, and it is through the lawfare. There's tons of things that uh, Republican state attorney generals have done that have you know stopped a lot of the uh, Biden immigration agenda. You know, the Biden immigration agenda, believe it or not, could be even a lot worse than it is today. It was only stopped because of Republican AGs like forcing the issue and forcing them to enforce uh, certain things that they didn't want to enforce, and. There's also these, uh, you know, suing over their anti-white stipends and stuff that they wanted to give out. You know, that's been stopped by America First Legal. So the judicial branch is very important. I'm not one of those people who think that like, oh, we can't go through the judicial branch. We have to go through the legislative branch. That's that's what our founders intended. It's like, well, you know, we don't live in a perfect world. You have to use what it is. And if you don't control the executive branch, then the judicial branch is the most viable path forward to make changes in the law and country. And so his second question is, do you think America First Legal is our vehicle for that path or just the beginning with many similar like-minded organizations to come? I think it's just the, I think it's the beginning. I don't, uh, I think other people can find that path. I think they focus on a lot of the important things that other conservative legal firms aren't, like the anti-white discrimination and other things. Like there's several like conservative legal firms, like they just focus on those issues, but most of them are business uh, economic regulation. And some of these groups even focus on like uh, overturning qualified immunity, which qualified immunity, which protects police from frivolous legislation. And if we overturn qualified immunity we'd effectively neuter law enforcement in this country incredibly horrible idea very left-wing idea but a lot of these conservative legal firms are dedicated towards it uh, very stupidly but uh america first legal is showing a different path and i support it um yeah i think they're a very great vehicle right now but i hopefully it's just the beginning for similar like-minded organizations to come you know, maybe organizations will sue more over free speech matters. There's still a few that do that, like FIRE, uh, uh, which does a lot of education-related issues. But they're generally like libertarian or more old-school ACLU-type liberals. But unlike the ACLU, they still care about that. I do think you would need you do need a new ACLU that is actually genuinely committed to civil liberties rather than just committed to advancing the left's agenda. That's a type of law firm we really need to uh, take a lot of these issues that the ACLU used to, but they no longer do. 
And they have to be nonpartisan and not just like complete whack jobs who are let relegated to the or this perception that they're whack jobs who are uh, just limited to the ghetto. They are outside the ghetto and they represent a lot of different groups and they're able to have mainstream legitimacy. And then when they take on cases for people who otherwise could not be able to afford serious legal representation, that helps them secure free speech. So that would be one thing I would like to see develop. But I think they're the... Uh, beginning of similar like-minded organizations to come. So I'm very supportive of their efforts. I think that's one of those positive things we see happening right now is that you see a lot more effective lawfare tactics from the right. And that's something to, and I think it's only going to be developed over time and be more sophisticated. And it's also due to the fact is that our ideas are becoming more popular as a lot of these Federalist Society judges and types will be more interested in what we believe and they'll reflect those beliefs when they're appointed to the federal, you know, courts. So, I yeah, that's one thing. Uh, the legal matters, even though I see the there are some like very uh, uh, one thing that like the presidential race is very important is that like Biden's like judicial picks are horrible. He's only picked, uh, you know, I think out of nearly a hundred picks he's had, only like five have been white guys, and only two of them have been straight white guys. <laughs> so it's he's basically appointing all these affirmative action picks who are not qualified for the judiciary, but they're being picked for their skin color. And for people who have uh, who are aware of this issue and have talked to me about that, they're saying it's a very grim uh, what it is. And that's like one thing you have to care about a presidential race is that you know you could have another four years of them picking. Um, <laughs> DMV ladies to be federal judges, and that's just uh, a terrifying thought to have. But I think uh, lawfare, as long as you keep conservative judges there, that's why it gets very important. Uh, that's why the executive branch is like, I think, the most viable path to make changes is just to ensure that the left doesn't uh, remake the judiciary to r- resemble more of their insane uh, dreams that they that they like to espouse. So. That is it for this highly respected. I hope people did not. I tried to make you know some white pills and try to uplift people and try not to get people too demoralized by what they see, you know. And as I said, you know, we're occasionally going to have losses and setbacks, and that's fine. And the real goal is just to continue to dust yourself off, to continue to move forward, and to not give up. Because I think if you give up, you just allow your enemies to win and have total control and total power over our society, and that's not what we seek. You just got to resist demoralization. You got to keep remembering that there is there's a lot of positive traits out there. There are still nearly 200 million white Americans. There's still more people waking up every day to our realities. We just have to make the right smarter and more focused on what matters. And hopefully through my little podcast, I make my own contribution and through my tweets and through what people listen, they get a better perspective on the world today. So. That is it for today's podcast. We're going to have another incredible IQ supplement later this week, so tune in for that. So until next time, stay respected.